I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Each fortnight we bring you a mixture of features and discussions exploring every aspect of gardening. Plant care, pest control, container ideas, growing your own fruit and vegetables. Plus expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Tony Dickerson, one of the team of horticultural advisors here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Coming up in this autumn edition, making the weather work for you. How to identify the microclimates in your garden that could allow you to grow the plants you never thought would survive in the conditions in your area of the UK. RHS experts answer your seasonal gardening questions, including choosing plants for shade, puzzling apple pests and a glut of green tomatoes. And, as always, we have the latest news on the RHS events across our four gardens. But first, let's head outside to find out what the teams at the RHS Garden Whistley are tackling this month. I'm Bernard Boardman. I work on the fruit team at Wisley, and we're sitting in the fruit demonstration garden trying to think about things that we should be doing now in October and perhaps a little bit of planning ahead for um, the colder months of the year. We still see that we have a few raspberries to pick of our later autumn varieties and they're still good eating as long as the frost hasn't got to them too much and we've had one or two of those recent mornings but do harvest them quickly because it's been a great year if you're a mould so there's lots of um, various sort of botrytis and mildew moulds about at the moment so the fruit won't last long now and of course We've also got wasps about still because it's been mild so their nests are continuing so they'll be at the fruit as quickly as we are so get out there and get it picked and into the freezer or into a pie and enjoy it while you can. You can leave your autumn raspberry canes alone until the spring or if you just want a little bit of a tidy up you could cut them in half but I like to leave mine uh, until the spring and then I cut them right back to ground level and watch it all start again. Hi, my name is Peter Jones. I'm the Glasshouse team leader at RHS Wisley. And now we're moving into the autumn time. It's an ideal time to start thinking about reducing the watering of your houseplants inside as our days are growing shorter. And and the plants are growing a lot less, so it's important to realise that they're not going to be needing quite as much. As we come into autumn and it gets a lot hotter and drier inside as we put our central heating on, it's a good idea to think about 
putting perhaps trays of gravel underneath our houseplants, such as ficus, indoor figs, or our orchids, so that we create humidity around the base of the plant. Also, if you haven't done it already, now is an ideal opportunity to pot any bulbs if you want them flying for Christmas, such as hyacinths or hippiastrums, that's amaryllis to most people. Uh, and if you pot them now and put them in a dark place until they start to come into growth, uh, you should have a nice show for Christmas. Moving into the greenhouse at this time of year, it's a great time to sow any sweet peas so that you get a, a good early start for next spring. Also, uh, look at your glasshouse and start doing a thorough deep clean. Make sure that you've got no uh, dead leaves or any cobwebs and clean off any shading that might be on the glasshouse so that you get good light levels uh, as it starts to get darker and the, the nights draw in. Uh, as we're getting colder, uh, we're, we're getting towards risks of frost, so remember to bring in any tender plants to overwinter in the glasshouse. A good thing that you could do in your glasshouse is to insulate with bubble wrap. Bubble wrap's clear, so it won't stop any light coming through, but it also acts as a layer of insulation and might keep your heating costs a bit down. Also, with that in mind, make sure that you've got your heater working before uh, the frost come in so that you don't get any surprises when you come in that, to your glasshouse after a cold spell. My name's Mike Ferguson, I'm the team leader of a Bases Ornamental here at RHS Garden Wisley and one of the jobs that we're doing this time of year is dividing our herbaceous perennials. So this involves getting a large clump that's perhaps been in the ground for three or four years and starting to outgrow its space, perhaps it's becoming a little bit leggy or perhaps the flowers aren't as strong as they used to be. So a simple way to divide this and, and free up the plant for future years is to divide it and we do this by generally if it's a large clump you can do back-to-back -back forks so inserting two forks into the ground back-to-back -back, and prizing them away from each other and this will simply tear that clump apart which is absolutely fine you can then simply replant one of the halves that you've got into the existing area and then give another half away to a friend or move it somewhere else and that way it's a great way of uh, self-propagating and uh, getting free plants there's more information on all aspects of plants and gardening techniques on the advice pages of the RHS website, plus general gardening tips and guides to seasonal jobs. rhs.org.uk forward slash advice. I'm Tony Dickerson and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. In our last podcast, we discussed some of the delights and challenges of growing tender ornamentals in the garden. As the name suggests, many of these popular plants are sensitive to extremes of temperature, which make gardeners shy away from them in some parts of the UK. However, just as different regions have different overall climates, each individual garden also has a slightly different local climate. And within each garden, areas where conditions differ again, often called microclimates. By assessing and using the microclimates within your own garden, you can greatly increase the variety and success of the plants that you grow there. We spoke to the creator of Bristol Botanical Gardens, Nick Ray, to find out more. I've been talking on a subject called garden microclimatology, a subject that I'm very interested in, which is the subtle variations on local climate that you would find in any one garden, or perhaps in any part of the garden. The hot, dry corners, the wind tunnels down the side of the house, uh, a damp area perhaps where the ground doesn't dry out during the summer months. These are unique areas where the gardener needs to appreciate what they are and where they are so that they can grow their plants to the best of their ability. I guess it's probably the most common one that there's, there's two. One is uh, where the wind will blow at its strongest, normally during the winter months, and it may damage plants, it may uproot them, push them over, push over fences. And the other is where the garden dries out in summer. 
and uh, uh, perhaps the sun falls in the latter part of the afternoon and the ground gets very warm, very dry. And often when there's um, an extreme climatic and environmental activity taking place in the garden, that's often seen as a problem. When in fact, if you look at where the sun spots are in your, in your garden, the sunny spots, the dry spots, you look at where perhaps the shaded spots are, then these are not problems, these are actually opportunities. It's about looking at the plants you're growing and that you want to grow, perhaps doing a little bit of research to find out where they come from, what they need to grow successfully, and then organising and planting them in your garden so that you're giving them the best environmental conditions in order for them to survive and hopefully thrive. Often plants are selected at a nursery on whim. They're in flower, they're a lovely colour, people are taken in by them, take them home, and then often the gardener will actually look at a gap in a border, a gap in a, in a shrub, shrub garden, or they'll look at it where they can actually see the plant from the house. Now, if it's a, a temporary plant, like an annual or something that's just going to be outside for the summer months, perhaps it's, it's less important. But if it's going to be planted permanently... One does have to give consideration to what the plant needs to grow, where it comes from. Is that situation that you would like to plant it in the best place for it? Maybe it will grow there and it'll survive and it'll do okay. Maybe it won't thrive. But often plants are put in, in, in the wrong place and they will, will never thrive. And in fact, actually, they, they will actually perish. And that, that leads to disappointment with the gardener and a frustration that they've done something wrong. Uh, perhaps uh, there may be something wrong with the plant. That's the perception. When, in fact, actually, the gardener's put the plant in the wrong place. And so finding out in your garden um, where the hottest parts are in the afternoon, where, for example, it's shaded in the morning, but not shaded in the afternoon, and everyone, every, every house, some part of every house, will face north and right up against the house, It'll be shaded uh, for um, the majority of the day. And people often see shade as a problem. It's not. It's an opportunity. It's where you can grow a lot of woodland plants, shade-loving plants, uh, the ferns, the bamboos, the hydrangeas. Lots of lovely things can be grown in shade. And uh, they do better there than they would do in full sun. So it's about thinking about where the plants come from, what they need, and the horticultural literature, information in books and on the web is full of uh, environmental information about what plants need to grow. Um, gardeners just need to bear that in mind when they're placing their plant, that new plant in the garden for the first time. Over a period of time, particularly over a, a, a number of seasons, that, that's when you would get your full assessment. How a garden would... Uh, say the amount of heat that's in a garden compared to say autumn September compared to the middle of January working in the garden in different weather conditions I would advise against doing it in pouring rain because you can damage the soil but on windy days cold days going out and having a look at the garden not being a fair weather gardener but going out and look at the garden different weather conditions you will gradually pick up knowledge of your own garden your own site as to where the shelter is, uh, when the wind's blowing in a certain direction, uh, where the su where the sun uh, resides in the middle of the day, in the middle of December and January, that's the key thing. You know, for shrubs that perhaps need just a little bit of warmth, just that bathing of sun for a couple of hours in the middle of the day is enough. Um, perhaps to initiate flowering, perhaps for a plant to survive in your garden, where elsewhere it wouldn't survive. Um, these are the subtleties which have make a 
collectively make a big impact on whether plants do well in the garden or, or, or not. Nick Ray, curator of the Bristol Botanical Gardens. If you'd like to catch up and listen to our last podcast, which featured a discussion about tender ornamental plants, that episode, along with all the previous episodes of the RHS Gardening Podcast, is available to download for free from iTunes. Go to iTunes and search for RHS Gardening Podcast. Now, if you're a regular listener to the RHS Gardening Podcast, you already know that members of the RHS advisory team join us regularly to answer your gardening questions. So let's join my colleagues now to hear advice on some of your autumnal problems. My name's Guy Barter. I'm on the advice team here at Wisley. My name's Rob Sterling and I'm also a horticultural advisor here at Wisley in Surrey. I'm Jenny Bowden. I'm also on the advice team here at Wisley. A question here from Amanda Rutherford from Essex. Uh, she wants some good plants that'll survive under trees, preferably something that might flower. And the trees that she has in question are a plum, cherry and a large bay tree bay trees of course are evergreen um, in flower beds and there's some bare soil underneath them i feel the name cyclamen knocking at the back of my teeth unfortunately in tony we have a cyclamen expert what do you think tony uh, well yeah indeed cyclamen are, are excellent for these often dry shady situations um we're talking about the hardy cyclamen not the the ones you'll buy uh, undercover in uh, garden centers and so on but uh, the fully hardy ones um in particular, the cyclamen hedrifolium, which will be blooming from August into uh, autumn, and then it's in foliage over the winter. As with all cyclamen, very attractive leaves, often patterned and marked and marbled. And to follow on from it, there are another species, cyclamen coom, which will then flower uh, from around about Christmas time into the new year. Both will die down during the summer, so they won't be p- competing with the plum and cherry, not that they would in to any great extent in any case and i might just add a bit of interest there um liriope muscari um member of the the lily family although it looks quite grass-like but it has attractive little uh, plumes of uh, purplish flowers and uh, that certainly provides some interest during the warmer months of the year and perhaps something like um begonia um elephant's ears uh, much, much maligned but again a very tough plant uh, more or less evergreen um, and again flowering particularly the white flowered forms very attractive but a whole range from pink through to quite dark purple and perhaps a, a few autumn flowering bulbs such as colchicums so that things that won't compete too much and uh, have slightly different growth patterns to provide a bit of interest throughout the year. Colchicums are um, often uh, known as naked ladies because they produce their flowers in late summer early autumn uh, very tall flowers, chalice-like flowers, uh, usually in shades of white or pink. Uh, some of them quite large, uh, you know, making anything up to a foot or so in growth. The leaves actually follow later uh, in the following year, so uh, hence the name Naked Ladies. They sometimes are erroneously called autumn crocus. Now, they're not autumn crocus, and you will find that there are true autumn flowering crocus and it's if you're looking in the bulb catalogues or whatever um culture comes will be under sea autumn crocus will be clearly labeled uh, but again they're another option there but the thing about culture comes they're, they're rather more substantial uh, certainly the the hybrids which are on offer and uh, crocus tend to be rather dainty and could easily be lost in a, a planting underneath existing trees
I think they're ideal for planting under trees because yeah. uh, they don't not going to interfere with loads of other herbaceous plants when the leaves come up. And uh, they, they, they look especially good here at Wisley, planted in the tree circles. But other things you might consider are epimediums, um, which uh, some of them are evergreen. Um, there is a common name, but I'm not sure that it's really going to help, and I can't remember it either. Um, a lot of them are evergreen. A little little uh, yellow flowers in the springtime cover the ground really well and block out weeds. And you could also consider um, the dead nettle, a dead nettle, a ground-covering dead nettle, a variegated foliage called Lamium maculatum. And so with with a few of these plants, you get quite a nice tapestry effect uh, underneath the trees and they keep the weeds down. So uh, you really need to be looking at foliage effect with planting under trees because you don't get that many flowers in the summertime. It's all early flowering uh, before the canopy would leaf out. I would like to add um, geranium macrorhizum, which um, is a, a low-growing geranium about um, 50 centimetres or 20 centimetres, in, 20 inches in height with um, a 60 centimetre or two foot spread. Um, it's quite interesting in that um, it, uh, it's very good ground cover, but it also has aromatic leaves, quite sort of balsam-like, actually, if you crush them. Um, and another good characteristic of it is that it generally has very good autumn colour. So consequently, apart from providing ground cover and flowers, the usual geranium-style type of flower um, in, in early summer, you have a very good autumn colour. We have an inquiry here from Richard Kelly from Nottingham. Uh, he says the leaves on his 10-year-old apple tree are covered in strange white squiggles, rather like worm casts. What's causing this? How can I stop it? And will it harm my tree? Guy. Well, this is a sure sign of um, insect larvae called leaf miners. And if you hold the leaves up to the light, you can see the squiggle and you can see little brown marks. And those little brown marks are what we call, if you'll excuse my language, the droppings from this critter and then you can see a little chrysalid where it's um it's sort of pupated and is about to fly off again happily this is of no significance whatsoever um the damage it does um is very very limited and it's something you can safely ignore uh, there's no reason to climb up your tree and pull all the leaves off um it, the tree will carry on perfectly happily and uh, like most leaf miners it provides food for other insects and for birds so uh, we've got to call it nature and um, apple trees are particularly beneficial for wildlife so um, on the whole it's good uh, the next question is from fiona cox uh, from saffron warden and she's asking if we have any suggestions for winter interest in pots well this is one of the most enjoyable things of all i love getting in my car and going around the nurseries and garden centers um, in this district where in the um in the autumn they're tempting my wallet with displays of really incredible primulas pansies violas ornamental daisies so i like to choose some of the prettiest colors that match and um, put them in my pots into which i've already often slipped some bulbs and then in mild intervals over the winter you get flowers and um in cold snaps well you stay indoors anyway so it doesn't matter and then they come into flower in abundance in the spring and then you can take them out enjoy them enjoy them again the following year if you're by keeping them in a reserve bed and somewhere in the shade over summer so um that's um that's how i keep my pots looking interesting over winter I would also, uh, more specifically, to support the uh, the violas and primulas and those 
bedding type plants that you get you you may consider some evergreens you might there's, there's a range of small pines which i, I quite like uh, so conifers can be used i especially like pines uh grasses something like carex evergold so that's a golden green leaf um keeps its leaves really well really tolerant of all conditions then there's uh, something called wintergreen which um it, it smells of uh, savlon, antiseptic if you were to crush the berries, but lovely red berries, lovely autumn colour, low growing, and its other name is Gaultheria procumbens. So think about interest from berries, of skimmias, uh, scented white flowers, and some of them produce berries. Ones like Reevesiana produces berries without having another skimmia nearby. And you could also consider hebe's. A heavy is an evergreen. It's a compact evergreen. There, there, some of them aren't so compact, but uh, that there's such a wide range. So anything from silver leaves to green leaves to flushed pink leaves uh, to purple leaves there really is um, a hebe for every colour scheme that you might choose. And hookahs could look really good um, teamed alongside them. And uh, don't forget herbs like rosemary and lavender. Mm. I think one of the things here is that uh, obviously uh, bedding plants like violas and polyanthus and so on will have to be replaced next spring. If you're looking for a low input approach, then evergreens certainly are the answers. The hebes uh, will do very well in uh, good light. But if more difficult situation, perhaps if you've got a very shaded uh, doorway or porchway or just a shaded wall, a simple arrangement, a skimmia in a pot, perhaps with some different trailing ivies and so on, uh, very low maintenance, will keep going for years, just a gentle bit of feeding. But uh, say if you've got a shaded situation, that certainly is another option. The other thing you could do, and something that was done here at Wisley and our urns, is um, cut some branches of uh, cornice, for example, and just stick them in um, and up at the plant centre um, in the season we sell something called Ilex verticiliata which is a type of holly but it's one that drops its leaves but it has dense 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 stems of berries and you could actually just stick those in for added interest and I'm sure the cornice probably will have rooted by the uh, time it comes to clear the containers so you've got some free plants as well might also be interesting to consider colour schemes for pots. So following on from Jenny's suggestion, such as Skimia japonica rebsiana, it might be um, nice to include something like Sikman persicum, the miniature hybrids, particularly if um, um, you know they're grown in a fairly sheltered situation in Saffron Walden, um, uh, using one of the red-flowered hybrids, which would tone in with the red berries of the Skimia uh, japonica rebsiana. And also um, a silver hookera, um, just to sort of team the whole two together would look very nice. Mm. And perhaps we should just give a plug to uh, listeners to the actual RHS website, the advice pages. If you go there and put containers, winter selection, you'll actually get a whole lot more background information together with some more selections that you could experiment with. We have an inquiry here from Liz Fletcher uh, from London, and she says that her tomatoes were a disaster this year, all green. So first of all, she wants to know why that might be, 
and also what can she do to improve this for next year and what should she do with these big pile of green tomatoes that she now has well um tomatoes do have a tendency to to not all ripen but to have none ripen that sounds very bad luck indeed i just wonder perhaps if you planted them a little late whether they quite weren't didn't have quite enough warmth whether they could have done with a bit more light those are all things to consider for next year also remember to give them plenty of potassium rich fertilizer especially if they're growing in bags or pots and of course some green tomatoes are well known for making chutney and um, if you're not a chutney fan there's lots of recipes on the internet about how to make various sauces out of the green ones Um, i can't say i've tried them yet but um i think i might have to the way things are going um also um ripening green tomatoes can be achieved just by uh, placing them in a bowl with either a ripe banana or apple and then covering the bowl over with cling film um, the ripe uh, fruit that um, ha- um, is included um, either an apple or banana um, releases a gas called ethylene which actually aids in the ripening process and I remember years ago my father having a glut of tomatoes which he had to bring in that were green because the frosts were threatening and uh, we had tomatoes on the wardrobes tomatoes under the beds and um, with each one there was an, an apple placed in the bowl and they all went, went red a message left on the rhs website message message board about tomatoes um, i grew tomatoes for the first time this year but despite regular watering with high potassium fertilizer they went black at the base after ripe ripening halfway through and then began to rot what did i do wrong well funnily enough i grew lots of italian tomatoes this year long plum shaped ones and i've never had such bad blackening at the base jenny put me out of my misery what went wrong i think you might have had a case of blossom end rot um it's basically a calcium deficiency but it isn't as though the calcium isn't there it's actually a problem with watering now um anon said that they watered them well but it is actually in containers it's quite hard to know that you have done the job properly uh calcium is carried in the, it's a constant stream coming up from the roots they need lots and lots of water once that once they get just a day or so without enough water the stream of calcium that is taken up with the water is stopped and then the damage is done unfortunately you don't get this problem out in the open as much if you're if your tomato plants are in the open soil in the allotment you don't see the problem as much it's usually in grow bags and containers and so um, the best thing to do is water them until you see the water coming out of the drainage holes and also uh, to improve ventilation in the greenhouse can really help with the uptake of water so those are the two main things that you can do and it isn't a case of actually adding calcium to to the containers I think one of the problems here is in very hot weather, tomatoes in containers will use an awful lot of water and it's certainly not unreasonable to be watering two, three times a day. Um, Another factor, I mean, tap water is great because it normally contains lots of calcium. Sometimes rain, water from rain butts and so on, because it's come directly from the atmosphere, uh, may not have that level of calcium. So again, that may be worth trying tap water. Another consideration also, since they're particularly... Um, stating that they use quite a lot of high potash fertilizer Um, excessive uh, potash and phosphates actually can lock calcium up in the soil so if they are slightly overdoing the fertilizing it might well be that the calcium in the soil is actually being made unobtainable because they're overfeeding so I think perhaps um, you know consider how much you're doing if you're if you're 
giving too much f- food according to the advice on the uh, bottle or on the pack, then reduce it somewhat and um, hopefully that uh, calcium will become available again. Guy, what would you recommend in terms of, you know, tomato feed is readily available in those bright red bottles, but just how often should it be applied? Basically, you follow the manufacturer's directions, but generally once a week is sufficient and once the first fruits are formed and then twice a week, Um, as they begin to ripen and possibly three times a week in the very late summer when you've got a tomato plant with lots of ripening tomatoes. Um, I think it's not so much that potassium is locked up in the soil, it's more that it competes with the same binding sites for calcium. So if the calcium supply in the soil um, or in the water is not great, then adding lots of potassium uh, can cause this um, can cause a competition for calcium within the plant. But that's easily overcome by using tap water to water the plants. Um, in the greenhouse, it's sometimes the case there's not enough airflow. So if this happens in a greenhouse, um, try and increase the ventilation. I think with Italian tomatoes, if they're the plum kind, the fruits are especially long. And so that means that the blossom end is even further from the roots than in normal round tomatoes. And I think um, from my observations this year where I grew dozens of different kinds of tomatoes and only had blossom end rot on the Italian ones, uh, there does seem some, this does seem to be the case. So special attention uh, for the Italian tomatoes uh, in future, I think, on the watering situation. The RHS advisory team. If you have any questions you'd like to hear answered on the podcast, you can email them to us at podcast at rhs.org.uk. Remember, RHS members can contact the advice team by phone, email or letter for free help with any gardening queries. If you'd like details on how you can become a member of the RHS, just go to rhs.org.uk forward slash join. So what's happening in the four RHS gardens this month? Come to the Taste of Autumn Festivals, supported by Mr Fothergill Seeds, at the four RHS gardens in October. There'll be a range of seasonal activities for all ages, including cooking demonstrations, tasting sessions and children's activities, along with talks and gardening advice. Visit rhs.org.uk forward slash Taste of Autumn. Visit the RHS London Harvest Festival show from the 7th to the 8th of October. A veritable feast celebrating the Taste of Autumn. Growers in the UK will exhibit their bounty in the RHS Fruit and Vegetable Competition. The show is the perfect place to get ideas and inspiration on late summer gardening and growing fruit and vegetables. Be sure to stay for the RHS London Harvest Festival late on the 7th of October between 6 and 9pm for an evening of music from folk artist Robin Gray, giant pumpkins, apple bobbing and tasty seasonal food. Later in the month, come to the RHS London Shades of Autumn show, 21st to the 22nd of October at the same venue for inspiration to extend the gardening season. Specialist nurseries from around the UK will be exhibiting colourful displays and a wealth of advice on offer from some of the best growers. For more information on the Autumn RHS London shows, go to rhs.org.uk forward slash London shows. We're out of time on this edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Tony Dickerson, and the team here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey, goodbye.
I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 